Okay, so we are, we had a little bit of technical difficulty there, so thank you for everybody uh, for putting up with that for a sec. But we are uh, going through uh, church history, and we're looking at the Enlightenment. Well, sort of the Enlightenment. I can't really technically call it the Enlightenment. It's like it's copyrighted. It, the official Enlightenment officially starts about the mid 17th century, but I can't really do that because you miss a lot of really cool pseudo-enlightenment-y kinds of things if you if you do that. So we are, are, are starting kind of a proto-enlightenment, uh, a, a test run for the enlightenment at the beginning of the 17th century, and we want to look at some of the new worlds that are being founded at this time. Now, as we said, Europe is on the cusp of a lot of paradigm shifts. There's going to be a lot of things that change how people look at the world. And I promised at the last time that we were going to talk about the pilgrims founding a colony at Plymouth, and I lied. And I got to lie. I, I got to apologize for lying. Um, we will talk about that, but I got to jump back a year to 1619, um, where paradigm shifts kind of get forced onto the world to give a little bit of a framework for 1620. Um, in 1619, for instance, Galileo had his first major run-in with the church. Um, and, and I'd be remiss if I just skipped over that. Um, he was debating the nature of comets against a Jesuit astronomer named Grassi and uh, kind of torqued the Jesuits off. Now, the debate, as it turns out, it, it turned in Galileo's favor um, because all the stuff that the Jesuit was saying was wrong and, and, and Galileo was right. And, and the whole thing kind of blew over. It's no big deal, except um, how, the, how the Jesuits handled it later on. In fact, uh, I should probably back up and even say uh, the Pope at the time, Pope Gregory the, the 15th, respected Galileo, protected him from, from the Jesuits and all the things that they were wanting to do to him because he beat them. Um, and even Gregory's successor, Urban VIII, was a scientist himself, and he was an early supporter of Galileo. We tend to, to, when we think of Galileo, we think of this really poor, nice man and these mean old, crazy, stupid church guys that, that were vindictive against him. And you go, it's, it's not that simple. Um, Gregory liked him. Urban liked him. He had two popes in a row that were positive toward him. In fact, um, when, uh, when Galileo was originally uh, brought before the, the Roman Inquisition in 1616, um, Urban had been a kind of a defense attorney for him as a church lawyer back then. He stood up for him and said, you know, I know he's arguing for this heliocentric model of the universe. I get that. Um, but if you can, if you can let me simplify this a little bit, it's like, it's not like he's Giordano Bruno. He's not another one of these utter flakes. Remember, Bruno brought in a lot of other craziness to it. He, he said, yes, the sun is the center of the universe. And let me tell you a lot of other crazy things. Um, he's like, no, 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 no. Galileo isn't like Bruno. Galileo's a legit scientist. He may be wrong about this heliocentric thing, but at least he came to this conclusion out of science, out of logic. It, it made some sense. All we need to do is tell him not to say that and everything will be cool. So Galileo was ordered to recant, to say, nope, I, I was wrong with the whole heliocentrism thing. The earth does not move around the sun. The earth does not move. Um, and everything will be all right. So Galileo said, sure. Recanted everything he'd ever taught about. Life is good. In fact, um, as I said, it, it, was, it was good with everybody but the Jesuits. They were not 
happy with him, and they stayed not happy with him. But, 1623, four years later, he's authorized to write a book. The book is supposed to be called A Dialogue on the Ebb and Flow of the Sea. Urban said, yes, I want you to write it. Um, originally, Galileo wanted to write A Dialogue on the Tides. But that was, I know it doesn't sound divisive, but that was divisive. Because Galileo was adamant that the tides were caused by the movement of the earth. And he's already had to recant that before. The earth does not move. So Urban said, maybe avoid the whole tides thing. That whole horrible divisive word, tides. Just talk about the ebb and flow of the sea. That, that'll, that won't torque off anybody. Just, just focus on that and try really hard to, to, uh, to be positive and, and to be balanced. In fact, Urban had authorized an earlier book about the tides, which agreed with uh, Johannes Kepler. And you probably have heard of Kepler if you've studied astronomy at all. Uh, and, he, and, and, and Kepler had argued, and this book had argued, and Urban has argued that the tides were actually caused by the pull of the moon, which in large part they actually are. So uh, Urban's on top of stuff. He's, he's a good scientist. And he said, well, let's let Galileo write his book. So Galileo wrote his book, but instead he called it a dialogue concerning the two chief world systems, i.e. heliocentrism and geocentrism, that the earth revolves around the sun or that the sun revolves around the earth. And he presented a debate between the learned Silviati, who is a traditionalist, or I'm sorry, who's not a traditionalist, and the traditionalist Simplicio, whose name meant simpleton, doofus. So it's Salviati versus Doofus, and he put the church's view into Doofus's mouth. In, in fact, specifically Urban's words, Urban's arguments, he put into Simplicio's mouth. And then he soundly, soundly defeated him. Yeah, you know, this is what you call a, a straw man argument, where you say, okay, here's my view, and here's the dumbest way I can present your view, and then I blow you over and I say, see, I'm smarter than you. Um... So not only did he ignore Urban's request to keep the book fair and balanced, not only did he not even focus on the tides, he even made fun of Urban for believing that the tides were influenced by the moon. This isn't smart, necessarily. So when the Jesuits said, no, Galileo has to be dragged before the Inquisition again, Urban was fine this time. He's like, yeah, no, I got no problem with that. Knock yourself out. So... 1633, Galileo's found guilty of heresy. And uh, Terry uh, brought up, why exactly does he have to uh, go before a court to defend science? The problem is, is he's seen as a heretic, because not only does he say that the Earth moved around the sun, and saying that the sun is motionless, which isn't entirely accurate, but that the Earth moved around the sun, when the church clearly says, the Bible clearly says, the earth is firmly established, and thus it doesn't move. So not only is he disagreeing with the church's interpretation of scripture, but the second thing is he actually argued that it's acceptable to hold a belief even after the church has declared it to be unbiblical. The church says that this is unbiblical. And he says, yeah, well, who cares? So not only am I disagreeing with the Bible, I'm saying you get to. People should disagree with the Bible. The Bible isn't necessarily true. You can't necessarily accept it. And you go, oh, 
Oh, Galileo. That's that shouldn't have done that. I mean, if you had made the argument, I think your interpretation of Scripture is inaccurate. I mean, he still would have gotten in trouble, but at least he wouldn't have gotten into this kind of trouble. Well, he, again, found guilty of heresy, forced to recant everything that he taught, which, again, he did. He was fine with doing that. Uh, although there's a, <laughs> there's a, there's at least a legend. He, he probably didn't say this, but it sure sounds like something he might have said, given uh, Galileo's basic attitude. <clears throat> there's a legend that after he said, all right, the earth doesn't move. He walked out of the room and said, but it still moves. Which, which is, that's just attitude is what that is. That's just Galileo being snippy. Anyway, his dialogue is officially banned. His writings were officially made illegal to publish. Nobody can publish anything else. He's done. All of his work is over. He's under house arrest. He's got to stay there. Nothing. Now, of course, Holland, being Protestant, was perfectly willing to print his stuff. You know, the Catholic Church says, no, it's banned. And Holland goes, I'm not Catholic. So what if you say it's banned? I don't care. And and so they're fine. Yeah, you want your, yeah, exactly. You want your English Bible printed? Fine, go to Holland. You know, talk to the Dutch. They're fine with printing your English Bible. But they'll print anything, man. They're Protestant. They're nuts. They can do anything. So he's put under house arrest. And he stays there until his death in 1642. But even though the Catholic Church is like, you can't do anything, keeps writing books. I mean, stuck in his house for 10 years with his with all of his, his textbooks and with his mind. Yeah, he can write. He can still put stuff together. So he, sure enough, he puts together more stuff and, uh, and, and gets it printed in Holland. And uh, it's very widespread reading of Galileo stuff, even while he's locked up. So, wacky fun. But again... Very few things in history are quite as cut and dry as we tend to have learned them in school. We tend to learn Galileo's, the stalwart, good, nice, dutiful scientist, and the church is mean. Well, no, the church was wrong. Of course, he was wrong about different things. But then he was a snot and torqued off the wrong people. It just, it's complicated. Because he's a human being. Real human beings are actually complicated. Now, this is also the same year. Uh, which is why we had to go back to 1619. It's also the same year that Africans are first brought to the British colonies. Um, not not as slaves, though. Well, sort of as slaves. There was a Dutch trader ship that confiscated 19 African slaves off of a Spanish ship. They were coming to the New World, bringing these 19 slaves with them. And the Dutch, there are very few people in the history of history who hated one another as much as the Dutch and the Spanish hated each other. Anybody know why? Why did the Dutch and the Spanish hate each other so much? Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, there's the, very good, there's the whole Protestant-Catholic thang. Yep, they, the, the, the Holland and Spain poster children of, of uh, their own versions of this stuff. What else? Yeah, they're, they're both maritime nations, and... Spain's been given most of the world by the Catholic Church. So um, Holland and the Netherlands, that whole area, feels kind of hemmed in. Spain and Portugal get everything, and there's not even really a Portugal anymore. It's all just Spain. Um, they're also bracketed by uh, all the Habsburg Spanish lands to the right of them, 
over there in Germany and all the Spanish Spanish lands to the left of them over in Spain. And there was an extended period of time where Spain controlled the Netherlands. Remember that? We referred to them the other week as the Spanish Netherlands. Spain is, is in control of that area. And it's only recently that the Dutch have been able to throw off that, that Spanish influence. So it's pretty intense uh, between the Dutch and the Spanish. So anytime that a Dutch ship finds a Spanish ship, yeah, they're pretty much going to take all their stuff. And they took the 19 slaves off, and then they brought them to Jamestown and said, we could use some provisions, and they traded them for provisions. But since the Spanish always tended to baptize their slaves, because they thought, oh, what a wonderful way to make them Catholic. I'm going to enslave you, and then I'm going to throw water on you, and that makes you Catholic. I win. It's a bizarre way of looking at outreach. But because they had been baptized, the... Um, uh, the English there at Jamestown treated them as Christians. And so they said, we can't enslave a Christian, so we're going to take you in as indentured servants. And you remember what an indentured servant is? What's, what's indentured, what's, what does it mean to be indentured? Right, it's you're, you're a servant or an apprentice or what have you to somebody, but for an, just you, you sell your contract to them for like seven years. You say, I'm going to work for you for seven years, at the end of which I I can go do whatever I want to do. In fact, a lot of indentured servants were apprentices, learned a trade, became their own bosses with their own indentured servants later on. Anyway, so they weren't slaves. But there were two major court cases in the early 1600s that um, led to Africans being declared legally slaves in the British colonies, and these two different court cases that people point to. Now, the first one was in 1640. And, and I'm going to argue that that technically isn't the right one to point to. That's not really an example of um, of indentured ser or, of, of slavery. Oh, let me let me go to it. 1640. Three indentured servants, British indentured servants, escaped to try to find freedom. One was a Dutchman, one was a Scotsman, and one was an African, a guy named John Punch. And they all said, "Oh, we're going to get away," which of course they didn't. They all got caught. All were were all three were whipped with thirty lashes. But here's the thing. The white men also had four more years' service added to their contracts as servants. But John Punch was first forced to serve his master for the rest of his natural life. And so a lot of people say, aha, the first slave. But that's not entirely accurate. Um, it's not the right way of looking at that. Because he wasn't really treated differently than the other two because of the color of his skin. When you look at the documents, none of them are referencing the color of his skin or his nationality. All of them reference the fact that he wasn't a baptized Christian. He'd been brought over uh, by either the British or the, or the Dutch. He wasn't treated as a slave by the Spanish. He hadn't been baptized. And so the first two were Christians, and so they were punished but the, the third one was, since he wasn't a Christian, they say, ah, you're unregenerate, you're, we, we, we can't trust that you'll ever get this. So that's it. Your freedom is gone for the rest of your life. Right, wrong, or indifferent, that's what it is. It had nothing to do with his race. Which makes this court decision more of a punitive one. It's based on a breach of contract. So it's more like he was being sentenced to forced labor, life imprisonment with forced labor, as opposed to slavery. Might be a subtle difference. I think it's kind of an important difference, especially since of the other court case. But I will say, 
uh, it's important to see that uh, Punch's great, 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 how many grandson became president. President Obama, great, 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 great grandson of John, of, of John Punch. Maybe. Okay. I got to say maybe. Um, because though there's, there's been kind of a move to say, yeah, like, oh, wow, talk about your Cinderella story. The great, great grandson of the first slave has become president. And you say, oh, except he wasn't really the first slave. And there's a lot uh, of argument out there that um, that particular genealogy is iffy at best. Um, that maybe he wasn't really um, related to John Punch in, in that way. Um, there's a lot of those records that, that just become very iffy. Is that really a tenuous uh, connection? So maybe he was. Maybe he wasn't. I don't know. It kind of starts getting political after a while, which it shouldn't. It really should just be genealogy. You, if you can prove it, then yes. If not, then don't say it. But um, everybody gets an attitude about it. Anyway, I want to go back to the other one. Um, give you a little bit of background. 1621, an African indentured servant named Antonio, later becomes Anthony Johnson, is brought to Jamestown. Now, by 1635, not only had he finished off his term of indenture, but he, he'd become popular and um, successful in his own right. He had several indentured servants of his own. So he was completely free. One of those indentured servants was an African named John Kaser. Apparently, everybody's named John. You're just going to find a lot of Johns back then. Deal with it. Deal with it, people. They're all named John. Uh, you got John Winthrop. You've got John Smith. You've got John Punch, John Kaser. Anyway, John Kaser. Uh, he has a seven-year contract with Johnson that Johnson had bought in the early 1640s. By 1653, Kaser, who is apparently not the sharpest crayon on the box, Kaser says, surely seven years have to be up by now. So he said, I, I really need to be released from my contract. And um, Anthony Johnson said, I, I, I don't think you should. But even Johnson's own family says, Dad, please. The guy has been a, a great servant. He's been a good guy. He deserves his freedom. Please give him his freedom. And so um, 1653, Johnson gave Kaser his freedom. And then the next year, he went to court to demand that Kaser be returned to him. Because he said, nope, nope, nope. Apparently, I liked what I was getting for free, and uh, I want him back. I'm not exactly sure what rationale, what precedent they had for this, but the court upheld his claim that something about the, the nature of his contract, that technically he was still under contract. And here's the interesting bit. By merit of that contract of servitude, technically, Kaser was equivalent to physical property. The contract was owned by Johnson. Kaser was essentially just his contract with feet. Therefore, Kaser was a slave. He was just physical property. That is officially the first time that a human being, uh, and particularly an African, wasn't called legally a slave in the British colonies. Not just somebody who had to work for somebody else forever, but somebody who was owned by somebody else as physical property. Um, now, not only is that just history, but it's also it's ironically painful that the first Negro slave in the British colonies was actually owned by 
another Negro, who had gone to court to have him legally declared property. Not a human being with rights, but property. Now, this came back to bite Johnson and his family in the end. Again, ironic. Uh, thanks to Johnson, uh, very quickly the legal precedent was set that any black-skinned person, anybody of African descent, could be bought and sold as a slave. Thus, they had no rights under British colonial law. For instance, 1665, Virginia passed a law that a child born under the status of born, uh, any child who's born is born under the status of his mother. Up until this point, in all British holdings, you were born under the status of your father. Now it's you're born under the status of your mother. So if your mother was a slave, you're a slave, which is kind of, kind of crucial, kind of huge. Uh, it's a way of not only controlling the slave population, but expanding the slave population. You don't have to keep bringing new slaves in. You just keep breeding new slaves as if they were cattle. Um, kind, of, kind of a horrific standpoint. So when Johnson finally died in 1670, his family tried to claim his lands as inheritance. But the court declared that because they are of African descent, they had no rights under the law. And so when his white neighbor contested the claim, they gave the land to the white neighbor. See, evil comes back to haunt you. Don't, don't get greedy. Don't do evil things. So, it's in this context that 1620, the Pilgrims are founding their own colony at Plymouth. Jamestown has been around for 13 years. The first bunch of indentured servants from Africa had come to Jamestown the year before. This is going to be a different kind of colony, though, because it's not a bunch of people just coming to make their way in the New World economically. These are people coming for religious purposes. Now, that means we've got to put this in its context. The Puritans that uh, Sir Francis Bacon, remember those guys? In the, they, they were separatists. That they, they said uh, they, they could not get along with the Church of England. In fact, you can flip-flop that. Church of England declared that they couldn't get along with the separatists. The Anglican Archbishop of York uh, plagued them so badly that they that they'd left illegally because you have to get permission to leave. They'd left illegally to run to Holland, where they felt like they could have some measure of, of uh, autonomy. Um, so they said, we've got to separate um, and, and, and move away uh, from a, a, a theory, uh, 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 an essentially and, and, and uh, fundamentally corrupted Anglican church, morally and theologically. It is unsalvageable. But they didn't want to stay in Holland because the Dutch seemed so Dutch, so not British. They were so foreign. And their kids were starting to like talk Dutch, dress Dutch, act Dutch, and that's not right. Like, can't we just be British here in Holland? You go, no. Strangely enough, you pick up Dutchness. And so they wanted to leave. Yeah. Michael's saying, weren't they famous for kind of dressing Dutch already? Everybody was dressing Dutch by that. I'm not going to discuss men's fashion all day, and I'm not going to do it. I, so we've got to keep moving. They picked up these Dutch customs, so they pooled the money. They got a land grant from the Virginia Company, and they set sail on the... That's right, the Speedwell. <laughs> not the Mayflower, the Speedwell. They left Holland on the Speedwell. They were going to meet up with the sister ship, the Mayflower, at Plymouth in England. And then the two ships would convoy everybody to the New World. 
So it was going to be it was going to be a, you know a nice twofer there. But the Speedwell was over 50 years old. Uh, but even by the time they got to to Plymouth it was falling apart. They didn't get much farther than they had to turn around and and stall decide to cram into the Mayflower instead. But that's important. I'm not just trying to be snarky by talking about the Speedwell, but it's important to remember that uh, <laughs> the Mayflower was not designed to be um to do, to do an ocean voyage like this or to uh, to hold this many people it was designed for shallow inlets hugging the coastlines and things not not transatlantic travel um and certainly not that much cargo and that many passengers i mean the deck was only 80 to 90 feet long at the rear 12 feet of which was called the gun room and it was off limits to the passengers and it was only about 24 feet wide at its widest point that's uh, that's that's uh, I, I measured it. That's a, that's just a little bit wider than the width of this room. Put another four feet onto this room, and that's the width of it at its widest point. The total deck space would have constituted less than a twentieth of a football field. Take a football field, chop it into twenty parts, and then take one of those parts. That's the whole deck space. And the sleeping cabin was even smaller than that. Below decks, 25 feet by 15 feet, with a ceiling only 5 feet high. How much fun would that... Don't everybody look at Randy. None of you could have stood up under that. Yes, Randy would have to, like, slither. All of us, all of us would have to crawl in there. It just would have been horrible. And that's what had to house 135 people for more than two months on the high seas. They arrived at Cape Cod in November. That would have just been miserable. Absolutely miserable for everybody. Um, they tried to go south, by the way. They wanted to go down to to Virginia where they'd contracted to take the land, but they, they bad weather kept making them have to bounce back to Cape Cod. So, because they arrived in November, because they're dumb, they had to winter primarily aboard the ship. And, and disembark in March of 1621. But by that time, due to illness, starvation, scurvy, all sorts of nasty things, only 53 of the original 102 colonists were left alive. Half died. And the reason only that, the reason that you had that many left was in large part due to a guy named Miles Standish. Yeah, yeah, you recognize that name. Miles Standish, who was a mercenary that they'd hired to coordinate their defenses once they'd gotten to the, to, uh, to the New World. But uh, because he knew how to ration food, because he knew how to control different things, yeah, this guy basically kept them alive. So, booyah, Miles Standish. Now, you've heard me say before, um, they'd left Plymouth in England, and what do you know? They arrived at Plymouth in the Americas. That's pretty cool. What are the chances? But I mean that, seriously. It had already been named Plymouth. I've been setting this joke up for months. They left Plymouth, and they arrived at something already called Plymouth, and it's not what they were aiming for. They planned on going to Virginia, but the place that they'd landed, when they looked at the maps, and they said, fine, 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 we're just going to stay here. What's this place called? John Smith had actually named it Plymouth back in 1614, New Plymouth. And so they said, oh, we're totally keeping that name. We're totally keeping that name. We left Plymouth, we arrived at Plymouth. Go figure. See, this is the fun bit about history. History's fun. All right, so the Puritan, Shepherd, uh, Puritan separatists um, had 
arrived at Plymouth, they'd already started calling themselves pilgrims, as if they were wandering the world in search of a new home, like like pilgrims to the to uh, to Jerusalem or pilgrims um, in the in the new world here. Uh, just after they disembarked into that new home, they were visited by one of the local tribesmen, a guy named Somerset, who walked right into the camp and said, Welcome, Englishman! To which they all said, Do what? Do what? You know, in the 1621 equivalent. But seriously, within the first couple of days, or, or, or like the, the next day after they, they made camp, this guy walks in and speaks English to them. You want to talk about being lucky? Somerset was a chief from the north who was just visiting the area. He was visiting the local chief, Massasoit. And luckily for the pilgrims, he'd learned English from a bunch of fishermen and traders. He didn't speak it fluently, but he spoke it pretty well. And if you really want to get crazy, a week later, he introduced them to a guy named Tisquantum, the last member of his own tribe, who had been taken by John Smith back to England as a slave in uh, 1614. This guy spoke English fluently. Tisquantum rocked. He taught him how to plant crops that would actually grow in the region other than the ones they were originally planting. Arguably saved their lives. By the way, um, okay, you've, if, you, if, if this sounds familiar, how, what other name might you have heard Tisquantum being called? By? Yeah. Squanto. He's not Squanto. He's Tisquantum. So anybody says Squanto, you go, nuh -uh. But Tisquantum even moderated a peace treaty for them with Massasoit, who, um, to tell you how much he liked the British, he actually slaughtered all the British who had brought Tisquantum back. He had attacked the ship and killed all the British, you know, to save his his Native American brother Tisquantum. Uh, did not like the British, so the British got very very lucky that Tisquantum was there to kind of smooth their way with Massasoit. But the pilgrims didn't see it all as examples of good luck. They said, no, this isn't luck. This is a blessing. This is God watching over us. And so the harvest that, uh, that fall of 1621, um, new governor William Bradford uh, had them celebrate a time of Thanksgiving, which included... No, not turkey. No, it was a time of prayer and fasting. It was very solemn. It was a time of worship. That was the first Thanksgiving. Now, interestingly, in a completely unrelated festival, they celebrated the bounties of the harvest with this great big feast. And they invited Tisquantum and they invited Massasoit and his tribe. Yeah, come join us and everything. But that first Thanksgiving was a time of prayer, fasting, worship. But there was also this big harvest festival, and we tend to conflate them together. And part of that comes, we, we come by that naturally, because in, what was it, 1623-ish, somewhere around in there, when they got uh, a relief ship from, from England, and they got more colonists coming to, to add to the 53, um, they had a big Thanksgiving feast. And that is what we oftentimes will talk about also being the first Thanksgiving but that's unfair because it's just the first Thanksgiving that looks like our Thanksgiving. First Thanksgiving was prayer and fasting. Now, also, if you look at the photograph here, obviously in history we got a lot of photographs. You look at the paintings that we have of these things. It's amazing how many times you'll see a whole bunch of pilgrims and you know, like two or three, two or three Indians there at the end, and you go, uh, actually, 
There's like 90 Native Americans that came to this feast and 53 whites. So uh, I know it looks for a, it looks like a better photograph this way to people trying to say, look at what we've done. We gave the poor starving Indians food. You go, no, Native Americans taught you how to eat and, and, and feed yourselves. You've got it backwards. But again, history, wacky fun. Okay, 1625. The Dutch went in on this. They're like, well, wait a minute. A bunch of people left Holland to go found their own colony at Plymouth. We can do that too. Now, it, wasn't, I, I, it wasn't the first time that they were in the New World, though. They'd been messing around there since 1609 when the Dutch East India Company contracted uh, Henry Hudson, an Englishman, to scout the place out for them. And uh, so they'd sent him there. He'd been commissioned by a guy named Moritz of Nassau, the Prince of Orange. Um, yes, there's a lot of Moritzes running around. But before I talk about his name, Moritz, I want to talk about Orange. Orange was a principality in southern France. It was named Orange, after Oragio, uh, a Celtic water god, actually. The citrus fruit was named completely independently of the principality. The Sanskrit uh, naranga fruit morphed into the Arabic naranj, which morphed into the Italian arancia. There's all these different versions of it, which ultimately became the French pomme d'orange, which uh, is just orange apple, which doesn't sound anywhere near as fun, but orange colored apple. Anyway, it wasn't even it wasn't even until the mid 1540s that the color that looked like the fruit was called orange. So the princes of Orange appreciated this kind of false cognate. You know what a false cognate is? It's when two words in different languages sound similar but have completely different meanings. Like go to Spanish class sometime and say you know, oh, I'm, I'm late, so I'm very embarrassed. Estoy muy embarazada, which means I'm very pregnant, right? Embarazada does not mean embarrassed. Anyway, um, what was I getting at? Okay, so the princes of Orange began using the color of the Pomme d'Orange as their own standard because they, they thought that was clever. And so at that point, all three, the principality in southern France, the citrus fruit, the color, all became conflated into what we now call orange. So when you say, well, where does the color orange come from? You go, it's from a whole bunch of different things. And how it all got smushed together into one thing, all because they were punny in the south of France. Anyway, so Moritz. Moritz was named after its grant down there. Okay, by the way, you say, why, why did you spend that much time? A, because you need to know. It's history, and it's important. You need to know the history of the color orange. But also because we're going to talk about orange again. You're going to hear about um, uh, Guillaume of Orange, William of Orange. Yeah, see, Moritz of Orange, you're all like, I don't know who that is, but there's a couple of people in the back that go, William of Orange, I know that guy. But not for a little bit, so we're moving on. Moritz was named after his grandfather, Moritz of Saxony, the hero of the, what league? The Schmalkaldic League. That's right. Because I'm trying to milk this for all I can. You're going to know Schmalkaldic. The Schmalkaldic League, that league that got uh, uh, religious independence for Germany. The House of Orange was currently overseeing the Netherlands. They'd helped the Dutch revolt against 
the Spanish. So Holland is under the control, the Netherlands, that whole area is under the control of a French prince who had been born in Germany, whose grandfather was from Saxony. That's Europe at this time. Again, just got to see how it all intertwines and interbreeds, literally, as it turns out. But uh, Moritz of Nassau, Prince of Orange, uh, had commissioned Henry Hudson to look for a northwest passage to the Far East. The Spanish and the Portuguese had that whole uh, we're going around Africa thing or we're going down through South America or, or below South America. So we're finding our own area. Let's go north. Let's go up through there. The original plan didn't work out real well because it's really, really cold. It's really, really cold to go up there. Strangely, if you say we're going to go through the Arctic Circle, yes, it's Arctic conditions up there. It's cold. But Hudson did begin uh, the beaver pelt trade, and, and everybody wanted a beaver hat. Oh, it just was the big rage in uh, in Europe. And he founded a, a, found a river that he named the Mauritius River after, after Moritz, right, which is why I wanted you to learn his name. But everybody since then has just called it the Hudson River after Henry Hudson. What else is called Hudson? Yeah, up here, Hudson Bay, that, that big cold bay up there. The reason it's called Hudson Bay is because he really wanted to explore it, but his men mutinied and set him adrift in Hudson Bay because they said, it's stinking cold. We're not going any farther north. You want to you wanna explore it? Explore it by yourself. Never saw him again. Yeah, no, seriously, we never saw it. After that, never heard of it. Apparently, he's still frozen up in Hudson Bay somewhere. Nobody's ever found him. But uh, that's why we call it Hudson Bay. So anytime you think anything having to do with Hudson Bay, just think, crazy cold! Uh, yeah, yep. So, uh, for a long-term settlement, the Dutch said, we're going to just go a little north of England's Virginia colonies at the mouth of the Hudson River um, near present-day Albany. That's going to be great. It's got it's it's right on the coast, but it's also uh, you can go travel up the river for the beaver trappers and get us them beaver hats. You know this is this is perfect. This is what we're going to do. Um, the next year, company director uh, Peter Minot uh, negotiated the purchase of Manhattan Manhattan Island from the Lenape tribe for about fifteen hundred dollars worth of goods. Now, you may have heard the old. Uh, old wives' tale is twenty what twenty four dollars worth of beads, and you no, it was from a modern standpoint fifteen hundred dollars worth of beads, which is still a pretty good price for Manhattan. Um, I don't I think I don't think you can get apartment space in Manhattan for fifteen hundred dollars an inch. So yeah, um, this should rightly go down in history as one of the biggest land swindles ever. Um, why? Because the Lenape didn't own the island. They didn't. They were kind of just passing through. It was actually controlled by a, a tribe called the Wapons. And, and, and so it's like they were just walking past and the, and the British come or the Dutch come along and say, we'd, uh, we'd like to buy this island from you. And, and they say, well, actually, we can't. No, no, we'll give you all sorts of stuff. They, well, you, really? What? What would you like to give us? I love in this picture here, you get this one guy over here with his arms crossed. I don't know. So the guy going, oh, what do you got there? This is great. And this is a huge land swindle. 
They're just like, yeah, sure, we'll take money for it. The first people to sell the Brooklyn Bridge who didn't own the Brooklyn Bridge were the Lenape. Shenanigans ensued. No, no, they didn't end up buying it again from the Wampans. By then, uh, by the time the Wampans are like, well, who are you guys? Well, we bought this from you. We've never met you. Uh, yeah, they just fought uh, quite a bit over the next several decades. It got, it got kind of ugly with that. 1627, uh, you get uh, New France. While all this English and Dutch colonization is going on along the coast, the French are staking out New France in the interior. Like, oh yeah, we we got this whole New France thing. Yeah, following up the waterways. We're totally doing France. Um Quebec had been founded in 1608 by explorer Samuel de Champlain, whose, whose name should be familiar to you guys. You should probably have heard of him. Yeah, Lake Champlain between New York and Vermont. Um, home of its very own lake monster. You don't need to go to Loch Ness. No, you can just go to Lake Champlain and meet Champ. In fact, uh, the Vermont Lake Monsters even has, the baseball team even has their own uh, their own mascot named Champ. Anyway, um, 1627. King Louis the Thirteenth established New France as officially a colony of France, and he named uh, Cardinal Richelieu as its first governor. And he made his <coughs> powerful um, Cardinal Richelieu uh, the first governor of New France. And uh, this is the same year that Richelieu ordered the siege of La Rochelle and slaughtered all this, the Huguenots who were there. And it became kind of an international thing when when the Huguenots were defended by the Duke, the Duke of Buckingham from England. Does any of this sound familiar to you? Anybody sit there and say, let's see, Duke of Buckingham, pointy beard, bushy hair, um, the, 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 the pearls, um, Cardinal Richelieu. Yeah! This is the Three Musketeers again. There's this, that's, that's the whole context of this book, is the siege of, of La Rochelle. And the, the Huguenots there, and uh, the Duke of Buckingham and the Pearls, and the Duke of Buckingham have an affair with the king's wife. And yeah, that's, that's, classic, uh, that's classic Three Musketeers stuff, so knock yourself out. Just put it all in its historical context. Anyway, under Richelieu, the French created what they called the seigneurial system. Um, and under this system, all the land in the New World was given to seigneurs, uh, lords, who then oversaw the, the working of the land by the tenants. And, yeah, that's the French word. Actually, the French word seigneurs and uh, the Spanish word senor and um, well, the Italian word signore. Um, the English word senior, all these things technically come back from the same Latin root. Uh, originally just meant somebody who was older. But by this time, in all of those languages, it had come to um, to mean somebody who is in charge because they're older. Somebody who has seniority. So, <laughs> like elders. Huh, yeah, elders has been elders. Older people until now it means People like Randy and Cliff here who are in charge of our church and run it with an iron glove. No. Um, so this land, they, they create this kind of feudal system in the New World. Uh, now the difference is you don't actually have to be from noble blood uh, to be a lord in New France. You just have to spend a lot of money. You buy your lordship. 
And so it really was an opportunity to create a, a sense of this in the new world. Yeah, Michael's saying, um, yeah, it's you'll, you'll still see still see vestiges of this in in Canada and in um, in the South um, that uh, this idea of, of of the the gentleman farmer who has all these tenants who work for him. Um, and that that's a good thing. Uh, I was talking to uh, Emily and Brian not too awful long ago. They watched the, uh, they watched uh, Gone with the Wind, and it, it, it's a beautiful spectacle. It's beautifully filmed. There's a lot of awesome elements to it. One thing that's a, that's vaguely creepy about watching Gone with the Wind is this overall sense of at the beginning of the movie this wistful appreciation for the fact that everything used to be so much better back when um, the gentlemen owned the farms and you had all these happy slaves working on the farms and and, and the, the rich white people sipping mint juleps on the porch, you know, the way God intended. And at the end of the movie, it's this horrible, ah, the world has been ripped apart and now everybody's just thrust into the dirt. Um, that mindset is not gone yet. It's still floating around. And, and, and you could point to the fact that the closer you get to Quebec or the closer you get to New Orleans um, in, in North America, the, the more you find this seniorial system, um, the, the, the echoes of that is still in the mindset of the people. Randy was saying that they, they were just in the South. And he said, uh, what, two or three times? Yeah, two or three times. That, that people talked about um, wistfully this idea of, uh, of of back when 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 you had uh, plantations and when you had um, uh, tenant farmers and all that kind of stuff as being the way things should have been the old South as it were anyway this this system went on in in Canada till 1854 you still had this as an official system and it and it wasn't voted down like unanimously there were still a lot of people who went I still think that's a good system um, so <clears throat> Richelieu also mandated that oh Terry was asking um, yeah in, in in the like the the French and Indian War and oh and, and uh, okay yeah Jenny um, French and Indian War it's being presented as uh, as if the the British colonists had their um, their communities and the French just were a bunch of trappers working with the Indians and things. There was there's definitely a sense of community in 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 New France, particularly in again up north in Quebec, down south in New Orleans. But there's definitely a, a, a <coughs> forgive me <coughs> a strong sense of community there. It's just a different kind of vibe. There's an awful lot of that land in between that, it, it, that they were basically just uh, trappers and explorers hanging out with the Native Americans. Um, and there was a lot of that in, in New Amsterdam. They were less interested in creating societies as they were in getting stuff out of the land. But again, when you're talking about Jamestown, and even more so about Plymouth, you're talking about people who are trying to make 
a, a life for themselves and for their families here in the new world. And so they're creating more of a sense of community. So, so why is it that when you, when you study the French and Indian War, you, you hear about, oh, the French were basically just hanging out with the Native Americans. They didn't have as much of an investment. Part of that is it's kind of true. In the area of the Ohio Valley, et cetera, it just wasn't as populated. It wasn't as, um, uh, it wasn't as civilized, for lack of a better term. It wasn't as cityfied, maybe a better term, urbanized, as it was on the coasts like Boston, yada, yada, Quebec, New Orleans. Um, so part of that is true. And part of it, not to sound crass, but you know, history tends to be written by the people who won. History books in the United States are written in English primarily by the English people who say, yeah, well, they weren't really invested anyway. It's kind of good that we won. So, all right. Again, probably not fair, is the way history is. Richelieu also mandated that nobody could settle in New France unless they were baptized as a Roman Catholic. In other words, no Huguenots allowed. We're not going to start this all over again in the New World. We want this to be done. Um, now, all this is kind of important because you're left with saying, um, this is a time of religious freedom in the New World, but not the way we tend to think of it. It's not a time when people became free to believe whatever they wanted to believe in the New World. We opened the door to everybody believing these things. That doesn't really come till like another 13 years with Rhode Island. Um, <clears throat> it's a time when pockets of people are free to believe the stuff that they had wanted to believe. And so in New France, you are free to be a Roman Catholic without those crazy Huguenots. In um, Plymouth, you're free to be a good Puritan. They were not tolerant of anybody who wasn't a good Puritan. We'll talk more about that next time. But you need to you need to, to, to recognize this is not a time of religious freedom where everybody gets to believe what they want. That uniquely American understanding of, of tolerance was not part of the American system at this stage in the game. And that's that's an important distinction to note. Okay. Um, 1629, the British seized much of the inhabited parts of the upper parts of New, Fran New France, especially Quebec. They took over and they said, aha, it's, it's England now. And, and before you get too excited, they gave it right back three years later as part of a big peace treaty. It's like, well, if you'll pay for this dowry, if you'll pay for this, then I'll give you France back. So it goes back. But it does present um, the backdrop of things like the French and Indian War, of things like um, the, the the English and French grappling over the New World that, that is going to be so crucial over the next century and a half, really, when it comes right down to it. Anyway. Now, <clears throat> this is also the same year, since we're talking about uh, religious tolerance or the lack of sin. This is also the same year that on the other side of the known world, um, 1629, the Tokugawa shogunate instituted Fumie. Uh, the shogunate, begun by uh, Toyotomi uh, Hideyoshi. Do you remember Do you remember him from uh, last century? This is the guy that had this vision of an idealized Japan. Everybody knew their place. Everybody kept a tradition with massive extremism. 
most of the stuff that you think of as that very stylized, very extreme, very, you must do it this way, and if you don't do it this way, you might as well just kill yourself perspective of Japanese culture. If you think like that, that's the Tokugawa shogunate uh, that lasted for an extended period of time. We will not change. Everything's going to be exactly the same all the time. Uh, that's crucial. For instance, um, I mean, this this went on through even like the, was the, the Meiji period through the uh, 1800s, where they're like, you know, we will not include any new things. That whole uh, rifles thing. No, we're not doing that. Repeating rifle. No, no, no. And, and, and which is why the the uh, uh, the samurai got mowed down by people with modern weapons. It's like, yep, yep. Maybe you want to rethink that. In particular, the Christians in Japan, called the Kirishitans, um, really had a tough time of it. Um, they were they experienced intense persecutions. Uh, especially down the south, like Nagasaki, uh, where they tended to get crucified a, a lot. Um, it's really hard being a Christian at this particular time. In 1629, the Tokugawa instituted the use of fumie to help identify closeted Christians. Because strangely enough, if you know you're going to get crucified for being a Christian, you don't tend to run around telling people, Hi, I'm a Christian. So how are you going to know? So these, these fumie were oftentimes very beautiful. I actually saw an exhibit of these one time. They're just gorgeous. They're these sculpted tiles depicting Jesus and or the Virgin Mary. But because they're Japanese craftsmen, they wanted to do this very beautifully. They came up with these gorgeous things. And they were given to the Lord of a region. And everyone in the region was then forced to step on or spit on or urinate on the tiles. In fact, that's what fumie means. It means a, a picture that you step on. Um, Everyone in the region was forced to step on the tiles as an expression of disrespect for Jesus and Mary to show that you do not love these people. So that is hard. I mean, if you were in that situation, what would you do? If they said, we will kill you unless you urinate on this picture of Jesus to show how much you hate Jesus, what would you do? Those who hesitated, if you even hesitated to do so, were, were obviously Christians and were tortured until they would recant. And if you say, well, I'm not really even a Christian. No, nope. you, you'll be tortured until you admit you're a Christian and then tortured until you admit that you are no longer a Christian. And if you don't recant, then you're crucified. That's how you deal with Christians. And this went on till 1805. That's a long stinking time. That's, that's what, 180 years? 175 years of, of, of this? It's a testament to the power of Christianity that um, even in the midst of all of this, uh, the church grew. It continued to grow. They couldn't get rid of, of the Christians. In fact, next time we get together, we'll talk about a revolt of, of Christians against the Tokugawa in this. But, but this is this is a powerful time, and and it's important for us to realize it's a powerful time of Christian religious intolerance around the world. Nobody anywhere 
was was open to people believing differently than they were. The closest you get is that hodgepodge group of of people in in Germany or or those times in in France where they say, okay, as long as you stay over there in your little bubble, then you can believe what you want to believe, but stay away from us. Um, but that's not the same thing as tolerance. It's just saying, I won't kill you today as long as you stay over there. This idea of saying, it's okay for you to believe differently than I believe about this. That's, that's going to come in 1640. We'll talk about that next time. And maybe next time we'll start 1630 with a sermon about a city on a hill by John Winthrop. But today, let's, let's just close off with this. Let's close off with an appreciation for what God has done in history to bring us to this point. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for the privilege that we have to be Arminian or Calvinist or Baptist or Catholic or charismatic, to be able to look at things differently and still try to come together to read your word, still try to come together to appreciate one another, to worship with one another. Thank you for something that we've taken so for granted here in the United States that sometimes we just, um, we think it doesn't matter what you believe. Obviously it matters. So Lord, I thank you that you've, you've encouraged us, you've enabled us to, to use our God-given intellects um, to appreciate and to um, discern the truth of your word. So thank you, Lord, for all that's come before. And I pray that you help us to be open-minded conservatives, to be conservative about your word, to say that your word is truth and that we need to base ourselves on your word, but to be open-minded so that we never assume that we have cornered the market on truth. Help us, Lord, to love one another well as we love you well. In Jesus' name. Amen.